Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I am your host of this podcast. And in this podcast, we try to look at what God is doing um, both here, um, for here me, is at Elmbrook Church and in the Brookfield or Milwaukee area in Wisconsin, and also around the globe. And just hearing stories of what God is doing um, both through larger groups of people and then in individuals' lives. And for today's episode, we're going to be talking about one specific person and their their legacy, um, the legacy that was given to them, and now the legacy they are forging moving forward. And I get to have the privilege of talking to one of my uh, friends and coworkers, Jan Ketty. And I just wanted to preface that this interview is going to touch on some sensitive topics, that we are going to be talking about the issue of race and racism. And also there is going to be one word mentioned when recounting a past story that is um, can be a very triggering word for some people. So I wanted to preface with that before we move forward. Um, But yeah, I really had a fun time with this interview and so I'm excited for you guys to hear it and just hear about Jan's story and this new legacy um, that she is forging with her family and everything God has done through her life. It's just very exciting to me. So we're going to jump into that. But right before we get there, I want to hit the pause before we get too serious and dive into a little cultural blunder story from Jan Ketty. Well, I guess... um So many of you may know um, that my son-in-law is Paco, who is the Mm -hmm. pastor of Elmbrook in Espanol. Um, And when he and my daughter started dating, um, we went down to Guatemala. Um, She was a missionary there in Guatemala City and had met Paco and we knew they were getting serious. So it was time for us to go down and meet him and his family. And, uh, and so I uh, prepared a special dinner. Jenny had asked me to make uh, chicken and broccoli crepes, which is our Christmas Eve dinner that I make every year. And um, so I made it for Paco's family. And uh, I was doing it in a little teeny galley kitchen in Jenny's apartment, kind of a departure from what I was used to. And um, making this production and of course I planned to have it ready at the time they were supposed to come and um, they were not there um, on time and it was about an hour and a half but I kept trying to keep everything hot and ready and um, and so um, so they arrived to eat finally and I put my chicken and broccoli crepes on the table and started passing them around and thinking, oh, you know, this couldn't be any better uh, of what they were going to eat and partake of. And then um, I saw Paco get up and go get something and he went in the kitchen to get chipotle powder. And (laughs) (laughs) and he and his family took, you know, had taken a bite and were kind of like, oh, you know, this is good. And then they got out the chipotle powder and put it all over their crepes. And uh, and then all of a sudden it was just right. <laughs> and so it felt like, oh, okay. So that was my first introduction into Paco's family. But um, they were just gr- a great people. We never got to speak heart to heart because... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, his parents have both passed away now, which is so sad at very young ages. Yeah. And um, 
and they never learned to speak English. But um, through our children and really through song, we got to communicate. We sang hymns together quite mm -hmm. often when we were together. And uh, we would sing a verse in English and a verse in Spanish. And it was a real connecting point for us both uh, relationally and spiritually. I like that a lot. Well, and also it was like you were coming in with this idea of what is proper cooking? What, how should you cook for them? And not something they were very interested in, unfortunately for you. Yeah, I, you know, I was thinking my dish didn't need anything else. And I realized, oh, for their culture, it did. It needed more spices. <laughs> it needed more spice. <laughs> Which were the... Were they? They were savory, though. They had meat in them, right? Yeah, they were. They were. They were not sweet. They were not sweet. Okay, that's good. They were, yeah, chicken and broccoli. So okay. Well, yeah. I mean, that's good because if they had put the chili powder on the sweet, yeah, that, that would have been, little... been hard. <laughs> <laughs> this was at least seasoning a savory one. All right. All right. Great. So everybody, I have the privilege of talking to one of my friends and coworkers, Jan Ketty. Jan has been around at Elmbrook for quite some time. You've served for a period in worship as the producer. Is that the correct title-ish? Worship coordinator, probably. Worship coordinator. And then was moved over to the mission department where you have been serving for how many years? I don't it's remember. It's been 10 now. 10 years? Yep. Yeah. And many people around Elmbrook, if you are an Elmbrooker listening to this podcast, there's a very good chance you know Jan. She's involved in a lot of things, especially um, in Harvest Fest, which is a big deal at Elmbrook and uh, been something that's been very pivotal in a lot of people's lives, um, including that of my wife. Um, I think I've shared that story before, but as a little girl, that was a very powerful thing for her. And we've heard many stories like that about how Harvest Fest has impacted people. And Jan's been fortunate enough to be involved in that for quite a few years now, um, originally with worship, but then also in the mission department as well. So Jan, today we are going to um, dive into your story and actually, before we kind of take a big jump off the deep end, I wanted to point something out to people is that you actually predated Stuart Briscoe as a child when you were attending Elmbrook, correct? Wow. Yeah, I remember this little building on Calhoun Road um, where I was baptized as a kid, where I um, committed my life to Jesus. That was when Pastor Bob Hobson was the pastor. Yeah. Um, they hadn't built the main sanctuary on that property yet. So it was about 100 people that could all fit in to one service. Um, and it was a great, great place to um, uh, be in community with people locally. Yeah, and I'll just say this even at the preface. One of the cool things about your story that we're about to dive into is that you were here really at the very beginning of Elmbrook, and then you'll talk about this as we get into this, but you moved back down south and then eventually came back to Elmbrook. And so it's kind of like you had these multiple touch points like in the very beginning of Elmbrook's history, but then also obviously have heavily invested in it in uh, later years. What I kind of want to dive into Throughout your life, you've had a lot of interactions with, we'll call it um, ethnicity or race, and kind of how your view of this whole concept um, has changed over time or maybe uh, grown and allowed you to have more of a deeper biblical view of this. And so that's what we're kind of, that's going to be one of the threads we're going to be looking at as we talk about your story. So why don't, 
I'll let you talk for a bit. Why don't you dive into kind of the beginning of your story of your first exposure to these things as you were growing up as a child? Yeah. Well, I think we, you know, all as kids and my generation saying, you know, Jesus loves the little children of the world. And, you know, of course we had signed colors to the races, which isn't probably culturally appropriate anymore. But, you know, I just had this real sense that, you know, that every child in the world had access to God and would be around the throne um, as we gather um, in heaven. And so you're just, you know, you live life knowing that God views everybody on the same level. When I moved back to Georgia, I was in high school at this point. It was eighth grade was high school there. So it was a big change for me to move back to the South um, where my parents were from, but I didn't really remember much of that. I came to um, recognize that there was a lot of racism that was still going on. I I recognized through different instances uh, growing up that I had some background with mm. with racism in my family. Um, I just learned a few years ago from one of my brothers that I had an uncle that was actually head of the Klan of Alabama. Wow. So not really realizing how deep that that racism was in our family, but it was something that I just didn't understand how it meshed with people's walk with Jesus. Cause I would have said all my family were church going people. Oh. And so it was kind of a rude awakening for me to, to recognize that. And just to see even the church participating in that along the way. I remember uh, I attended the university of, of Georgia for college. I ended up living with an elderly woman who was diabetic and needed like a companion in the evenings at home with her. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, was glad to to have this little extra job and and earn some money while I was in school. It was about 15 minutes from the the campus. I became aware that on the um you know, the pictures on the wall, there was some Klan rally pictures. And, oh, wow. And uh, one of George Maddox, who was uh, known as a, as a pretty racist governor of Alabama. And I learned that her husband had been part of that. So we talked a little bit about that. Um, but I had an instance where I had a, um, a project that I needed to do and with one of my classmates. And I asked... Um, Mrs. Dooley, if um, if this young woman from school could come mm-hmm. and um, work with me on the project at her house, I don't think I even thought about the fact that she was um, a black student, and so I invited her over, and um, I, I realized Mrs. Dooley looked a little surprised when she walked <laughs> in the door, <laughs> and I thought, oh goodness, yeah, I guess I didn't really think about that. She made us dinner and and served us actually dinner. Mm. And as she was cleaning up, I noticed that she put bleach in the rinse water. And I thought, "Uh I haven't noticed her doing that before. We continued with our project, got done what we needed to get done. And and she said goodbye to my friend. Um, As she left, she said, that was a nice Negro girl. And I didn't mind her eating off my plates but I didn't, I wouldn't want her sleeping on my sheets. 
And I learned that that wow. was the first time a black person had crossed the threshold at her house. She had had black women that would come and visit her, but they would always stay on the porch, you know? So I was waking up to like this rural uh, thought patterns that took mm. place. And, and I realized what made me the saddest in the whole um, situation was the older black women who you could tell felt like they were less or responded to people feeling like they were beneath other people. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for me to watch. So that was something that caused me to really think uh, on my own treatment of people um, of color as I interacted with people on the college campus. And then um, as I moved back up to Wisconsin um, and uh, came back to Elmbrook uh, as a young married woman. So Jan, uh, this woman you were staying with, she would also identify as a Christian, correct? Oh, yes. They were in church every Sunday. In fact, uh, their their church, um, I attended while I was living with her, um, the church down the street where she uh, attended. And I was invited to sing a lot. I was a vocal major in college mm -hmm. back then. And, and I remember singing for their annual meeting and, and they had a vote. They, um, there was a group called Vista back then that was like um, the Peace Corps, but in the U.S. So you could okay. volunteer, kind of like Teach for America today, mm -hmm. but it was like doing community service work. And the Vista group had asked if they could use the church for their meetings. But at that congregational meeting, they voted down that um, um, that opportunity for the group to meet there because there might be black people attending. Wow. And so, you know, I, I, it was another realization to me that, that racism wasn't just an individual thing, but there was, you know, churches that were excluding yeah. people based on race. When in the world. In this part of the podcast, we look back and reflect on what has happened in the past of Elmbrook Church. How has God grown this missional passion? What has God done through Elmbrook Church? How has he helped matured us? And specifically today, we're going to look back on Harvest Fest. How did Harvest Fest start? Why was it started? And what are some of the implications from having a mission festival every single year? And this is incredibly pertinent, I think, to this episode because we're interviewing Jan Ketty, who has devoted much of her life and over the last 10 years has really helped shape and form what Harvest Fest is. And for me, I'm incredibly passionate about this because there are so many individuals, not just in our congregation, not just in our community, but around the globe, who can point to this event for being pivotal in their growth and understanding of who God is and what God is all about. So now let's go back to 1971. At this point in the church, Stuart and Jill had already arrived. There was a growing excitement around this idea of God's mission and how we are going to be part of it. But the church realized that there was a lack of maybe guidance and best practices at how to approach this. And so the mission committee was formed and they started to provide oversight and tried to figure out how do we move forward as a church as we're seeing this growing amount, honestly, of money coming in and also excitement in the church. How do we steward this well? And the year after 1972, they realized there was a need to celebrate and to specifically focus on mission. And so the mission festival was formed. 
And this continued every single year until 1999, where we could invite our field workers from around the globe and bring in some church leaders and let them speak and encourage and spur us forward to continue on God's mission and hear what's happening around the globe. But there was one glaring deficit in this time. We almost never heard from the majority world, the world outside what we would call the Western world. We had a few notable exceptions of people who came and spoke, but it was very, very few. Predominantly, our speakers were our field workers or leaders in the West. But then in 1999, Elmbrook took a shift from the Mission Fest to Harvest Fest. And it was during this time we saw a drastic change in who was coming and speaking to our church. We of course still had our field workers returning and speaking into the life of this church. But at least every other year, we had a speaker from the majority world sharing their insights that they were getting outside of the Western world. And I think that is one of the biggest reasons why Elmbrook is at its point today missionally, because we allowed those who you could argue are different than us to speak into us and speak truth to us. This is Ben, one in the world. So it's very interesting to me the juxtaposition that we see um, in your story as a small child and now as a, as a college student of like you reading the Bible and singing these songs about Jesus loves little children of all the colors, like all these different colors, all these different races and ethnicities that will one day be at the throne before Jesus. And you had this in your mind that you're all equal and you come to Elmbrook for a bit and then you go back to the South and all of a sudden you're eyes are kind of open to this other reality that Christians who also read the Bible, who also probably sang these songs, this is the way that they are treating people who look differently than them. And you're kind of forced to like, it's, they're Christians, but they're not living out this thing that you as a little child had picked up on. And they're treating people as subhuman, basically. Yeah. I mean, I... Uh, I just think that there was a, a hierarchy, you know, that was in, you know, kind of ingrained in their thinking. Sure. And, uh, and so it was, it was, a, it was a really hard realization. I, I remember being on campus and hearing about sorority rush and finding out there was a rush for black students and then one for white students. You know, and I, I was surprised by that as well. And this is in the, you know, uh, mid to late 70s. Mm-hmm. So not all that long ago. So do you think, how important of it was it for you to be pulled out of your environment in the South? Do you think that, I mean, being at Elmbrook for that little bit as a child, do you think that would have changed any of your thinking? Or do you think... I don't know. I'm just curious if that shaped you at that point at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it did. Um, I think I was at an age, too, where I was thinking more about who I wanted to be as a person and how my Christian belief and what I was learning um, through uh, discipleship ministry that I was in, how that interacted with um, how I treated and interacted with others. And I didn't really realize what God was preparing me for. Mm. Um, But when I came to Elmbrook um, and realized there were lots of opportunities to meet international guests, 
that came into town, it, it not only expanded my view of, of people of color, but just the, it, it expanded my worldview um, in general because I was, I was recognizing that there were uh, leaders from all over the world that were following Jesus, that were, that were impacting their communities. And I had the opportunity to host people in my homes and, and meet with them. And uh, I, I think that really helped prepare me when then I uh, worked in the worship ministry and, and interacted with a lot of these guests that came into town, our international center guests and that sort of thing. And it really prepared me for being a grandma to my grandchildren <laughs> because um, uh, I have a, a, a kind of a rainbow family. Um, you, the United Nations, one of my friends, Celia, calls my family the United <laughs> Nations. You know, our oldest daughter went to Guatemala to become a missionary. And I thought, oh, she'll meet some missionary boy um, that she will marry. And um, then I learned she met Paco. And I thought, huh. And, and so mm. it was great to watch them fall in love. And, uh, and then, you know, I have two grandchildren that um, from that marriage that are half Caucasian and half um, Guatemalan, half Hispanic. Yeah. And so, uh, and then another of my daughters um, fell in love with uh, a Chinese American man at her college. So we added uh, an Asian guy into the family and they've adopted five children, uh, two of whom are black and three who are Hispanic. You know, I've had the opportunity to think about how racism impacts the children of today through mm. the eyes of my own grandchildren, how people react to them. And uh, I think it did prepare me for that and to be able to love in a way that um, is unconditional. One of my favorite pictures that I have, um, I know you've seen it, is mm -hmm. of... Um, Barrett and Charlie, who are uh, both nine years old now. And uh, the picture was taken a couple summers ago when they were in a swimming pool together. They're, they've been best friends since the moment they met. <laughs> and, uh, and as they've grown up together, one black, one white, um, and they're just inseparable when they're together. You know, I, I want them to be able to uh, have those times together as they grow and for them not to be judged based on the color of their skin for how they're interacting or, you know, I want them to be able to, to maintain that relationship throughout their lives. So yeah, trying to, to help them navigate that is part of, I think the role of uh, our family and hmm. me as a grandma. Well, it's very interesting. Like I brought up juxtaposition before, talking about you as a child and college student, what you're seeing in your family, what you're reading in the Bible. But also, um, if we look at two sides of your story here as well, you learned that your uncle, um, which was the head of the clan in that area, and that's that's huge. And that's like you talk about these, well, I'll say racist roots in your family and things that 
obviously has to have affected your family. But now you see this point of as you are growing, as Jesus is opening your eyes to more people around the world, um, you're meeting more people, you're interacting with different people, you're seeing how he treats people in scripture and eventually leads to your children now, well, first off, marrying men from different cultures and um, who look different and then having this family with all of these different kids from different different ethnicities and navigating that. It's a very different uh, world than the one that um, your uncle um, was in and a very different family legacy, um, in my opinion. How has that affected you personally? You know, I, th- I think it's... It's heightened my prayer life um, and caused me to want to read more um, about um, systemic racism and and issues that um, impact um, uh, the black community as well as other people of color as well. We've seen Asian racism during this year uh, as a result of the coronavirus. So... You know, just trying to be um, really knowledgeable about people's experience because I think that's what helps you until you know the circumstances of someone in your life and you take time to listen and to interact with them. You can't know them uh, in a way that can um, uh, grow your relationship and help you to learn from them as well. Um, I, I think we're, we can often dismiss things where we need to spend more time really um, getting to know that person in the pew next to you sure. that may look different from you and finding out what their story is. Or, um, you know, one great example at Elmbrook is, is the James Place Ministries opportunities sure. where you're able to... Um, you know, just be a listening ear for people, um, whether it's, in, you know, they're dealing with poverty or mental illness or whether it's kids um, that are struggling in school um, and, um, you know, people that are dealing with uh, immigration status issues. I mean, there's so many people in our community that we view as different and maybe make a judgment call on and we have to back up and and rethink. Mm. And how would, you know, Jesus respond to them and look at them in the same situation? And are we, are we seeking to do that as well? I think that's a really good challenge. But I also wanted to pose it as a question to you. One of the things um, that I could imagine running through someone's head is like, you're sharing the story of this uh, very blatant racism that you saw uh, when you went back to the South, um, maybe in your family, in an individual, and also in like larger institutions like a church. Um, Some people might say, well, yeah, that's in the South, that's different or that's in the past. How would you respond to that? Oh, I think it's um, it has very little to do with location. I think it has more to do with um, people's hearts and um, and just fear um, as well. I think mm. I think we just have a um, and I don't know what this dates back to. You know, I, maybe it's from the beginning of time, but I think mm. we we tend to fear those that look different or. Sure. 
or react differently. You know, I had um, the opportunity when I was in high school to interact with people that were in an in, were institutionalized, and I had the opportunity to interact with them and see them as real people, um, see their their gifting. Uh, someone who was who was blind, who could play the piano unbelievably and couldn't really communicate at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, these opportunities to see, um, you know, people that were really ostracized from society. And it, I think that impacted me on, on trying to see people as, as God made them and um, to recognize the purpose in that. And, uh, you know, I just believe that we're supposed to learn from that um, and that it's supposed to color how we see ourselves and our and our own need. So I like this idea of, um, you talked about coloring even yourself and how you view yourself um, through God. I think a lot of times it's very hard to see ourselves clearly when we live in a homogenous uh, group or a group that all thinks alike, because then I will start to see myself, I think, in a way that isn't actually how God sees me or in reality. Because there's this thing in the Bible of like, we are all one, we are all God's children, but there's also this beautiful diversity and purpose that God puts on different people and different groups of people. And I think for you even, like as your life, as you've grown, like you've started to see that more and more. And at Elmbrook, that doesn't exclude us. We are not, um, we do not have it all together. Mm-hmm. Like it, it influenced you how Elmbrook interacted globally and with people who are different, but we've still got a long way to go. And for each of us individually, me included, like how do I see people who are different than me, who look different, who act different? Um, I need to get to know them. I need to learn their story. I think there is something very simple about that of developing a relationship but also something very holy as well mm-hmm. very god honoring so i like that idea of like coloring your image even of yourself because otherwise you kind of just walk around in ignorance i mean even even in your story of what happened in the south a lot of those people were living in ignorance that's how they've always lived and then you even bring um, a woman who of color into that elderly woman's house. Like, who knows what kind of ripple effect that had on her in the long haul of like, wow, that was a really nice woman. You don't know. Yeah, you don't know. And um, yeah, and it was, you know, there are many times like that where I was grateful that um, scripture taught me, <laughs> you know, to see people through God's eyes and to not just respond, you know, in a way that other people around me were responding, but to look deeper. Hmm. And uh, so that's something I want to really challenge myself to do as I grow older. Um, One of the books I've been challenged by uh, recently um, is a book called Be the Bridge. It's uh, really looking at how you respond um, uh, to people of color. It's a book that uh, we've decided as a mission staff that we're going to um, do a, a study of following Harvest Fest. 
it's a chance to kind of look deeper and, and evaluate where you're at um, mm-hmm. with um, the topic of racism to look a little bit deeper into other people's experiences as well. So, yeah, that's if this has kind of touched you and thought, oh, I need to I need to be thinking about this a little bit deeper and exploring my own reactions to others. Yeah, I think that's a great plug. And that book is written by Latasha Morrison. Yeah, well-written, uh, very easy to, well, easy to read through and how she wrote it, maybe not the content. The content can be very heavy. But Jan, I just wanted to say thank you for making time to to share your story. I know um, in some sense it's a, it's a very vulnerable story about your family's past um, and about you and how you've grown and how scripture has really played a part in how you see people. And for me, it's very exciting to have you on this because you are such a good example of someone I think who like you literally can trace your roots back to racism and how you are living now and the people you surround yourself with. Like your family is never surrounded by people who are just like you. You guys are constantly surrounded by people who are different from you than you in so many different capacities. And I think that is a really good model. And obviously the way you've lived your life has drastically impacted your children and will impact your grandchildren as well. So it's very cool to see this new legacy being set um, with your family. So yeah, thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Jake. It's great to be with you. So I really appreciated the opportunity to sit down with Jan and spend time going through her, her story. And for me, looking back on just that conversation, I want to once again bring up the idea of legacy. This background, this family lineage that she inherited, um, that she was raised in, and how through God's transforming power, through interactions with other people who are created in his image, through her time at Elmbrook Church, God was just working in Jan. And we can see that now looking at her family and how they treat and interact with other people and even how they look. For me, I am challenged to want to leave a legacy like that for my son as well. And I hope that many listening to this podcast would be encouraged to really dive into these things, to learn and get to know people who are different than them. So thank you guys once again for listening to another episode of What in the World.